1974, Michelle Wallace lost her life to another human being in the Rocky Mountains. The first predator, the one that took her life, was bad enough, but there were many more that would follow, picking at her carcass and scattering her remains throughout the wilderness near Kevlar Pass, just west of Crested Butte, Colorado. Before her body returned to dust, a young, smart, and tenacious investigator and members of a team called NecroSearch worked together with a lot of skill and some good luck. They found her skull. After over 20 years, Roy Melanson would be brought to justice for her murder. They didn't know then that he was a serial killer or that the vital work they did in Michelle's case would help solve several other cases. Welcome to Twisted Travel and True Crime. I'm your host, Sandy. This episode begins in Colorado in the United States, but Roy Melanson was a drifter. He murdered people in several states, including Louisiana and California. He was suspected of killing in Texas as well, but for now, we'll start in the Rocky Mountains. Michelle Wallace loved nature and the outdoors. She couldn't get enough of it. That love led her to her career as a freelance photographer. She'd grown up in the Windy City, also known as Chicago and Illinois. The hustle and bustle, the lights and noise were part of her everyday life as a child, but as an adult, she wanted the opposite of the lifestyle she was accustomed to. Her mother and father were high school sweethearts that married in 1940. First came their son, George Jr., and then Michelle. Mother, Maggie, had an adventuresome spirit. She'd tell her children all about Jack London's books like Call of the Wild and The Sea Wolf. She'd yearned to adventure as a young woman, but she'd married at 20 and hadn't had the opportunity to do much exploring herself. Instead, she lived vicariously through her daughter. Maggie encouraged Michelle to explore the world, and so she did, having traveled to Spain and Africa after high school. Michelle chose to go to college in Utah. This way she could be close to nature and the beauty she was drawn to. Then she took a job in Aspen, where she raced down the snowy slopes by day and waited tables at night. When she had free time, she'd head outdoors with her camera hanging around her neck and click away. Like many people who are trying to start a business, she was always on the go. Even so, at 25 years old, Michelle took time to speak with her mother Maggie at least once a week, no matter where she was, but oftentimes she'd call as many as two or three times a day. As Labor Day of 1974 approached, things were going well for the Wallace family. Michelle's photography business was picking up, and her father's pizzeria in Chicago was booming with customers. Michelle picked up an assignment to do some work out in the Carolinas. She was hired to go take photographs of people who lived in the mountains. A new road was being built, and the backwoods people's isolated lifestyle would soon cease to exist. She was given a grant to capture their lives on film before the new road changed them forever. Before Michelle started on this assignment, she had a little bit of time. She decided she'd go off camping and photographing in the mountains. Once more, before she had to move to the Carolinas. Michelle had done this type of trip many times before, so her parents weren't worried about her. Beside that, she had her guard dog, a German shepherd mix named Oki, with her. Even without her dog, though, Michelle was a tough cookie. She'd climbed mountains, jumped out of airplanes, and roped cattle. She had no fear of missing out because she created the plans. Her most recent plan was to hike the mountains for a couple days over the long weekend. She promised to call her mom to tell her all about it when she returned. 
Michelle never called that Labor Day, and after nearly a week of no contact, her family reported her missing. Searchers spent thousands of hours scouring the back country above Gunnison, Colorado. They had no luck. The sheriff's department searched extensively through the air and on the land in the mountainous area where Michelle had backpacked, camped, and took photographs. They asked the locals for tips. When Charles Matthews heard a radio news report that Michelle and her dog were missing, he called the sheriff's department and reported that she had given him and a man named Roy a ride. Charles said that on August 29, 1974, He'd met a 37-year-old man named Roy Melanson at a bar in Gunnison, Colorado. Roy was complaining about a bear that was going after his horses, so he and Charles decided to go after the bear. They drove in Charles' car together to a cabin where Roy was staying. They had been drinking a lot and arrived late at night, so they went to sleep. The next morning, the men started drinking again and spent some time driving around the cabin area searching for the bear. Then they headed back towards Gunnison. On the way, they saw a young woman, her dark hair tied up in braids, walking with her dog, and they offered her a ride. Michelle told them she'd been camping and taking pictures, but was on her way home now and needed to get to her car, which was just a short ride away. Unfortunately, on the way to her vehicle, their car broke down, and soon all three were walking together towards Michelle's Mazda. Michelle likely felt obligated to help them now because they'd offered her a ride, and she'd accepted. So now, she likely volunteered to take them wherever they needed to go. Charles rode in the back with Oki, while Roy rode up front with Michelle. Charles wasn't one to go long without a drink, so he asked Michelle to drop him off at the bar they had been at the night before. But Roy asked Michelle to take him to his truck, and the two drove off together. Charles noted the conversation because Roy had never mentioned that he had a truck. The investigation expanded to include a search for Michelle's red Mazda and for Roy Melanson, the last person to be seen with Michelle. Animal lovers, you may want to forward this episode about 15 seconds because what I'm about to tell you will hurt your heart. A rancher came forward to police several days after hearing about Michelle and Oki being missing. He said that he was out checking his cattle and saw a dog barking at and irritating his cows. As some ranchers are prone to do, he shot the dog. When he approached its dead or dying body, he saw that it had a collar with the name Oki printed on it. Oki always stayed near Michelle, so him being off and alone was very worrisome for Michelle's family. Thirteen days after her disappearance, Roy was arrested in Pueblo, Colorado, about 160 miles away from Gunnison. When he was questioned, he said, yeah, he knew Michelle Wallace, but he didn't know her well. He said he'd seen her hiking and that he knew she had a dog, but he'd never been in her car and he claimed he didn't know what a Mazda looked like. At the time of his arrest, Roy was driving a Cadillac, and when it was searched, police found the registration for Michelle's Mazda, her insurance card, and a Mazda toolkit. They also found a set of her car keys in the pocket of a pair of pants that Roy had kept in a bag in the back seat of his car. When they searched the bag, they found a signed pawn ticket. It was from a Pueblo pawn shop that Roy had visited a week earlier. When police visited the shop, they found Michelle's camera. They arrested Roy 
and brought the evidence they had collected to the sheriff's office in Gunnison. Once there, they found additional pawn slips and some other papers belonging to Michelle and Roy's wallet. He had pawned her sleeping bag and backpack in Cedar Falls, Iowa. Film from the camera that he had pawned in Pueblo contained pictures of Michelle, a photo of her dog, and oddly, a picture of Roy with another woman in a motel room. The woman in the photo would later be identified as a friend of a local family that Roy had been staying with. Roy was a charming, smooth-talking particle of poop. He would lie about his life, job, or life experience in any way that would endear him to his target, whether the target was a man or a woman. When Roy was down on his luck, this family had hired Roy to help around their house. He'd do chores, hunt animals, or whatever needed to be done. They'd even lent him a sleeping bag, because at the time Roy had nothing, and they thought he was such a good guy. This family had five young daughters. In time, Roy would rape one of them, and a friend of their family. But the girls didn't tell anyone for years. At some point, Michelle's Mazda was located in Amarillo, Texas. Things weren't looking good for Roy, but he explained the situation to the police, saying that Michelle did take him to another bar, and while they were inside having a drink, he stole her car and all her belongings, which he sold as he traveled further away from Colorado. The police were extremely skeptical, but for the moment there was no body, so they couldn't prove she'd been murdered, let alone that he'd murdered her. Back in Chicago... Michelle's father, George, his wife, Maggie, and their son, George Jr., were numb with grief. George Sr. said, One minute God was good, and the next minute we asked why. Life was an adventure for Michelle, and she was sweet and kind, and she met, all her life, nothing but nice people, until she met this bastard. Michelle's mother, Maggie, had never felt such stress or grief like this in her entire life. She and Michelle had a closeness that couldn't be described with words. George Sr. explained that when Michelle died, something in his wife Maggie evaporated. Five weeks after Michelle disappeared, Maggie took her own life. She knew Michelle was gone, and she'd only held on that long in the hopes that police would find Michelle's remains. In her suicide note, Maggie asked that if Michelle's remains were found, they'd be buried next to hers. George said, One month I had a wife and daughter, and the next month I had neither. I had a restaurant and a son, but without the two girls, I felt like my life was over. Months went by, and then years, with no forward progress on the case. But the Gunnison County Sheriff's Office hadn't completely forgotten Michelle. A young woman named Kathy Young had moved to Gunnison and fallen in love with the area. She took her first job as a dog catcher and then as a police dispatcher. Kathy fell in love with police work, and in 1989, she was made investigator in the sheriff's office. Fifteen years after Michelle disappeared, Kathy took on the cold case. She began sifting through evidence and came across a hairbrush that was collected from Michelle's apartment. In the evidence, she'd found that in 1979, Five years after Michelle disappeared, some hikers had found a human scalp with pigtails on a logging road near Kebler Pass. The sheriff's office speculated at the time that it might have belonged to Michelle. They conducted a fruitless search and then stored the scalp with the rest of the material from her case. 
Kathy decided to send the scalp and the hairbrush to a lab that determined the hairs from the brush were a probable match to the scalp. She decided to dive deeper into the case, and she began with finding Roy Mellinson's location. He had been imprisoned in Texas, then released, then placed in prison again in Kentucky. She spoke with Roy, and then with some of the inmates who were housed with him. They claimed that Roy had bragged about burying an unwilling woman in Colorado. Their words, not mine. The authorities still had no body, but they had now what they felt was a strong circumstantial case. They charged Roy with murder, and of course he fought extradition, pointing out to the judge that there was no corpus delecti. In other words, still no corpse. Roy didn't think police could prove his guilt. Kathy needed that body, so she asked the lab worker who had tested the hair samples for help. This lab worker put her in touch with NecroSearch. In 1991, Kathy approached the group for help. She didn't really believe that they would find Michelle's body. The Rocky Mountains were vast, and they'd already been searched twice, but she felt like it was respectful to Michelle's father to show that the sheriff's office had exhausted all possibilities. NecroSearch were happy to help. They are a group of volunteers, specialists in their fields, who are dedicated to assisting law enforcement in the location of graves and the documentation and recovery of evidence. Since 1988, they've assisted in over 480 cases in 42 states and seven foreign countries. In Michelle's case, they only had the hair to go by. The scalp was examined by a botanist named Vicki Trammell and a naturalist named Cecilia Travis. They noted that the hair was full of conifer needles, which are associated with plants that grow on a north-facing slope. In August of 1992, three NecroSearch members drove to Gunnison. They were accompanied by several students who were learning about cadaver recovery. Together with Kathy and the other sheriff's officers and volunteers from nearby law enforcement agencies, they embarked on an extensive search centered on where the scalp had been discovered. They found nothing on the first day. On the afternoon of the second day, they were beginning to feel disheartened. They were coming up empty, and so the team stopped for a breather. They wondered if they should wrap things up when one of the searchers began walking down a steep slope, and suddenly right in front of them was a skull laying there in the open with a gold tooth twinkling in the sunlight. Michelle had had a gold tooth. Later, using dental records, the skull would be positively identified as belonging to her. They lucked out, and based on what they saw, they believed that her body had been thrown from a car and rolled down the hill to its final resting place, right up against a tree. If I was a betting woman, I'd wager it was a conifer. The work that lay in front of the recovery team over the next few days was both exciting and depressing, they sifted on hands and knees all along a 40-degree slope between the skull and the logging road Michelle had likely been tossed from. Because of the steepness of the slope, the team tethered themselves together for safety. They carefully recovered what was left of Michelle Wallace. Among other things, they found buttons, an orange thread, a leg bone, and a boot with bones inside it. Unfortunately, the team couldn't determine definitively how she had died. When Roy was faced with the fact that Michelle's body had been found, his hands began to shake. Then he sneered, 
and began staring menacingly directly at Kathy, the investigator who solved Michelle's murder. Michelle's father, George, said that after weeks, months, and then years, you give up hope. He never believed that her body would be found, so his emotions were wildly jumbled when he heard the news. He had deeply mourned Michelle two decades ago, but the grief hit him again just as hard when her body was found. Of course, he thought of his wife, Maggie, whose final wish he would finally be able to grant. Now Michelle's bones could be buried right next to her mother's, but first they would be needed at trial. In 1993, Roy would be sentenced to life in prison for Michelle's murder. George, whose life hadn't been easy since he lost his daughter, had been able to find love for the second time. But his second wife, who had been ill for a number of years, died in January of 1994, just a few months after Roy was sentenced. George said that life had come in full circle for him in 1994, because in less than a week, he had gone to the undertaker to make arrangements for his second wife's body to be picked up from the hospital. Within one hour of making those arrangements, he got a phone call from Gunnison saying that they were shipping his daughter's remains to him. George couldn't believe that he had to talk to the undertaker twice about two different family members in less than an hour's time span. By the end of that week, the doorbell rang and he had his daughter's remains in his hands after all those years. That same day, the undertaker came to pick up his second wife's remains. George didn't have an easy life, and sadly, his death wasn't easy either. He had retired to Florida, and at 85 years old, someone broke into his St. Petersburg home during an apparent robbery and beat him. He died in the hospital a couple days later. George's grief had washed over him in waves for decades. It had drowned his wife and eroded the foundation of his happiness, but he was able to overcome the grief. He rebuilt his life and went on living the best he could. Meanwhile, Roy Melanson went on destroying people and families who crossed his path. Michelle was the first of several murders attributed to Roy. Only a month and a half before, and over a thousand miles away from where Roy met Michelle, he crossed paths with a woman named Anita Andrews. She and her sister owned a bar in Napa, California. Anita was 52 and had a day job at a hospital, but she worked the bar six evenings a week. She was neat, clean, and fastidious. She was also set in her routine and habits. Anita, a former beauty queen, was always dressed well. She wore stylish jewelry and carried a purse containing her checkbook, cash, makeup, and car keys. Like clockwork, she'd open the door at 5 p.m. and close it sometime between 9 and 11 p.m. She and her sister were trying to sell the bar, but they had to keep it open for 25 hours a week in order to keep their liquor license, but there were never many customers. When she worked at the bar, she chose to wear a black diamond onyx ring, so people would think she was married. She also wore a Belova watch and a bracelet. The bar wasn't in a safe neighborhood, so she liked to park her tan 1967 Cadillac right in front of the bar so she could keep an eye on it. On the evening of July 10, 1974, three friends were enjoying a night out. They planned a bar crawl of sorts. Anita's bar wasn't the first they stopped at and wouldn't be the last. They walked into the nearly empty bar and noticed there was another customer, a white man, 
possibly in his forties, with a wet, slicked-back hairstyle, beady eyes and thin lips. He sat at the bar drinking a beer and smoking a cigarette, but he sat in an odd position. He turned his back to the three other men in the bar and seemed to be covering his face with his hands. One of the three men, curious, maybe a little belligerent and certainly observant, yelled at the stranger, wanting to know why he was hiding his face from them. The stranger didn't respond. Another of the three men named Dave apologized for his friend and shook the stranger's hand, which was soft and limp. At one point in the evening, one of the three friends asked Anita if the man was her boyfriend, and she said that he was, but the man wasn't sure whether Anita was just blowing him off or if the stranger really was her boyfriend. The three friends stayed at the bar for no more than an hour and a half, and after they left, which was around 9.30, Anita was left alone in the bar with the strange man. Several hours later, when the three friends walked by the bar again, they noticed the door was closed, the lights were out, and the Cadillac that had been parked outside earlier was gone. The next morning, Napa police would respond to a call from the bar. Anita's mother received a call from the Napa State Hospital. Anita never showed up to work, which wasn't like her at all. Her mother sent her sister to look for her. Anita's car wasn't at the house, and she didn't answer the door, so her sister thought maybe she'd gone to the bar for something. When she pulled up to the bar, Anita's car wasn't there. But her sister noticed the padlock was missing from the bar's door. They always locked it when they left the bar. When she went inside, she found her sister and called police. Anita's sister was in shock when they arrived. She told them that she thought her sister had been raped and directed them to a storage room where Anita lay dead on the floor. Her clothes were torn and in disarray. Blood pooled around her upper body. Police immediately secured the area and a bulletin was issued for Anita's missing Cadillac. Later that morning, Dave, one of the three friends who had been at the bar the night before, heard about Anita's murder and contacted the police to report what the men had seen. Later that day, an unidentified man used her credit card in Sacramento to buy gas for a Cadillac. But Anita's car was never recovered. Remember, this was a time before computers and instant information at our fingertips. Anita's daughter, when questioned by police, said that her mother didn't have a boyfriend at the time, but she had told her daughter that a man she had briefly dated had come back into her life and was bothering her. He had run up a $400 bill on her phone, and she was keeping his tools in the trunk of her car until he paid her back. At the bar, investigators collected evidence and documented observations that were relevant to the investigation. They noted that the bar counter had been recently wiped with a towel and was clean except for an ashtray containing one cigarette butt, a shot glass, and a mixing spoon. At an angle from the ashtray, there was one bar stool moved out from the row of neatly arranged stools under the bar. The sink area behind the counter was also clean and clear, except for a screwdriver setting on a drain. It had left a small rust mark where it had been placed. There were three basins filled with a small amount of water, and the water from the middle basin tested positive for blood. There was a crumpled and stiff towel on the floor under the sink and blood stains on the bar floor about two feet from the double doors that connected the bar area to the storeroom. 
There were footsteps, suggesting someone had walked there after suffering an injury like a bloody nose or a face laceration. Anita was found on the storeroom floor on her back, partially undressed. Blood had pooled on the floor and was spattered on the walls and over many of the objects in the storeroom. She had put up one hell of a fight. Her clothes were torn, punctured, and partially removed from her body. Her pants and underclothes were removed from her right leg, but remained partially entangled on her left. This left her genitals exposed. Her blouse had been opened and her bra pulled down, exposing her breasts. There was glass on the floor and in her hair, likely from a broken beer bottle that had been used as a weapon. Two loose buttons and one of her shoes were on the storeroom floor, and an earring was found in the bar area just outside the storeroom. Anita wasn't wearing her watch, ring, or other jewelry, and the investigators couldn't find her purse, pocketbook, credit card, or car keys. There were bloody shoe prints that were not made by Anita. They led from the storeroom to an upstairs office which contained a cash box and a safe. According to Anita's autopsy, she died from multiple stab wounds to the body, especially her chest, combined with an injury to the head. The 13 stab wounds were inflicted by a thin pointed instrument, which could have been the screwdriver. The blunt force lacerations, including the laceration on her scalp and the skull fracture, could have been inflicted by a glass bottle. She had many other bruises and abrasions on other parts of her body, a broken nose, and other injuries consistent with being punched. The condition and positioning of her clothes and a bloody towel found near her genital area were signs that a sexual assault had been intended. However, there was no physical evidence that one had occurred. Police questioned everyone who had seen her that evening, but there were no real suspects at first. Her case went cold very quickly. In 2001, 26 years after she was murdered, an officer conducted DNA testing on several items from the crime scene and on two items from a man named Liston Beale, who had been the suspect at the time of the murder. Liston's only connection was that he was the right age and was seen in the area on the night of the murder. When the results came back, Liston was cleared. His DNA was not the DNA found on any of the items in Anita's case. In 2008, police tested additional items from the crime scene, and because of advances in DNA research, and because Roy Melanson's DNA had been added to the database, Rotten Roy was found to be a perfect match. In November of 2009, detectives interviewed Roy. He was 72 years old at the time. The interview took place in a Colorado prison. Roy said he'd never been to Napa and denied any involvement in the murder committed there in the summer of 1994. He claimed he was living and working in Colorado that summer, and before that he lived with family in Texas. He said he didn't even know where Napa Valley was. When the investigators disclosed the DNA match, Roy said the evidence was wrong. He also denied that his fingerprints would be found at the crime scene. Detectives obtained another sample of Roy's DNA, and they also took his fingerprints and a writing sample. The DNA sample taken from Roy confirmed a match with the DNA from the cigarette butt. This match made it absolutely certain that Roy was the smoker in the bar on that night. Experts then analyzed Roy's fingerprints and handwriting, 
His fingerprints were identified on five empty beer bottles found in the trash that night and on a rum bottle that was found behind the bar at the time of the murder. A handwriting expert compared Roy's writing sample to the signature on the credit card receipt for the gas that was purchased in Anita's name after she was murdered. That analysis was inconclusive. There were some similarities, but the quality of the gas receipt was poor, and it was likely that Roy tried to disguise his handwriting when signing the receipt. In January of 2010, detectives showed David, if you remember him, he was one of the three men who had been in the bar that night. They showed David a photo lineup containing photographs of six men. One of the photographs was a 1975 picture of Roy. David looked at the pictures for approximately 40 to 45 seconds, and then identified Roy as the man he saw in the bar on that night. David said he remembered the eyes the most, but he also admitted that he was not 100% sure that Roy was the man from the bar. Roy would be convicted of the murder of Anita Andrews in 2010. At the trial, the court excluded evidence of two other murders. The first was the murder of Pauline Klump. She was last seen in Port Arthur, Texas, in July of 1988. Roy was living with his ex-wife and her new boyfriend in Port Arthur. They were renting their house from Pauline, and they were the last people to see her before she disappeared. She came to their house to pick up a television set she'd loaned them. While there, she supposedly asked Roy to come and help her with her air conditioner. They left together, and she was never seen again. Four days later, her car was found in a grocery store parking lot. The television set was still inside it, but there was no indication of Pauline's whereabouts. A man who traveled with Roy after Pauline went missing later told investigators that Roy had told him that he'd killed women and dumped their bodies in swampy areas near Fort Worth, Texas. Soon after that, Roy was convicted of weapons and stolen property charges in Kentucky in 1990. When he was incarcerated, Police interviewed him about Pauline's disappearance, and he said she was alive and well the last time he'd seen her. Her body is still missing. Interestingly, the detective in charge of her case accepted assistance from a Louisiana psychic named Karen Janis. Karen had previously aided in locating remains in Mississippi and Canada. She described the scene of the crime in an astonishingly accurate manner including details that only police officials knew about, even though she had never been there. According to her, Pauline's killer likely decapitated her and tossed her head in a grassy area. She added that he was very dangerous and evil and that he had killed far more women than the detectives knew about. The second murder was of a 24-year-old woman in early August of 1988. This was only one month after Pauline went missing. Charlotte Sourwin's body was found in a wooded area north of Walker in Louisiana. She had been strangled and her throat had been cut. Deputies reported her jewelry, purse, and gun were taken. The gun was a thirty-eight caliber pistol. Detectives say a witness saw Charlotte the day before her murder, talking to a man at a laundromat. The man was described as being in his mid-to-late forties and driving a light-colored car with out-of-state license plates. Investigators later found out that Roy had been arrested in Kentucky on a weapons charge in 1989. He had a 38 handgun on him at the time, but the serial number had been filed off. 
It was also learned that he was driving a light-colored Chevrolet with Texas plates when he was arrested, and this matched the description of the car the man at the laundromat had been driving. Detectives flew to Colorado to question Roy about the evidence in the murder, and he refused to answer their questions. He reportedly complained about being very upset because investigators from all over the country were visiting him and questioning him about cold cases. When Roy tried to turn the tables and interrogate the detectives, he was reminded that if he wanted to discuss the case, he would have to sign a Miranda rights form. He refused and then smiled at them, saying that if his DNA was on the victim, you go ahead and charge me. The detective smiled back and said, we will. Another DNA sample was taken from Roy, and it matched a sample left on the victim. Charlotte's fiancé, Vince Lejeune, was cleared, but not until years later. Vince had been the primary suspect for years. He explained that the local sheriff's office had distributed pictures resembling Roy in 1988, but never legitimately considered the possibility of a serial killer in the area. Local detectives believed that Charlotte's friends invented the laundromat guy to cover for Vince. The same detectives routinely picked him up to review gory crime scene photos and try to convince him to confess. In time, the detectives convinced Charlotte's family and their friends that Vince had murdered his fiancée. When Vince was finally cleared, it was too late for Charlotte's parents to learn the truth. They had died, wrongly believing that Vince had killed their daughter. Vince had to live with the emotions of being falsely accused and with the regret that he never kissed his fiancée goodbye that morning. I'm sure the murders have been enough to convince you of what a terrible scumbag Roy was, but he was also convicted of several rapes. I'll tell you about two of them. The first woman testified that she was 17 in February of 1974 when Roy pulled into a gas station in Texas. The woman had stopped for gas and remembered that Roy looked like an old cowboy and that his hair was greasy and slicked back. There was a gas shortage at the time, and the station was closed, but Roy said he knew another place to get gas, so he suggested that the woman follow him, just in case she ran out of gas on the way. As she was following, he pulled over and gestured that he needed her help. He asked her to try to start his truck while he looked under the hood, to which she complied. When she did, he came over to the truck pushed her down to the floorboard, and threatened to kill her if she tried to get up. Roy then drove to an empty field where he raped her several times. She tried to hit the horn to get the attention of a car passing in the distance, and when she did, Roy slapped her, tied her up with pantyhose and a rope. He then gagged and blindfolded her. This woman testified that Roy took her to a garbage dump where he raped her again and repeatedly threatened to kill her. He then drove her to another location, moved her into another car, and then drove her across the Louisiana border into a swampy and wooded area. At that last location, he raped her repeatedly and told her that if she didn't enjoy it, he would kill her. After the last rape, she began to talk to him, and he reacted as though they could become friends. The woman offered to tell her mother that she'd tried to run away and told Roy that her mother would believe her because there were problems at home. Roy told the woman he would bring her to a payphone, where she could call her father, and they drove back into Texas. He told her that he was the uncle of a girl she went to school with, and that he'd been stalking her. Before letting her go, he told the woman that he would kill her if she reported him. The second victim said that on the evening of August 8, 1972, 
She was on her way to a club in Orange, Texas. Suddenly, her car got a flat tire, and two men in a pickup truck stopped to offer assistance. The driver was Roy, who was stocky with a beer belly. The passenger was a younger man, around 22. He was slim and had short hair. The two men checked her spare tire and found that it was also flat, so they offered to drive her to get it fixed. On the way, Roy said he needed to change vehicles and drove to a house where they left the passenger. Roy put the spare tire in a different truck, and the woman got in beside him, thinking they would head to the nearest garage to get the tire fixed. Instead, Roy drove to a secluded area where he launched himself onto the woman, acting as though she would accept his advances. When she asked him what he was going to do, he said he was going to have sex with her. Well, not in those words exactly. He was much more crude. She resisted, but the more she fought, the harder he fought back while using offensive language to describe what he was going to do to her. At one point, he punched her in the face with a closed fist, which stunned her, but she continued to resist until he twisted her arm back and pinned her down. He then forcibly removed her clothing by pulling her pants completely off one leg and down to the knee of the other. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? Then he repeatedly raped and sodomized her. He forced her to perform other sexual acts while all the time talking to her and telling her to respect his wishes. This went on for an hour and a half until Roy finally finished. She testified that after he did, he sat there, at which point she tried to humor him, hoping she might outwit him. She made him laugh and offered him some tissue to clean himself. She threw the tissue out the window, along with her torn underwear, so that it could be found later. After she put her pants on, Roy started apologizing. Eventually, he drove to a gas station and arranged for someone to fix the tire. Then he drove her back to her car and changed her tire while she memorized his license plate number. He apologized again and told the woman he would drive her to the highway. As they began to drive in separate cars, an acquaintance of the woman drove by and stopped to check on her, at which point Roy drove away. These two incidents of rape were before the murder of Michelle Wallace. There was one more accusation of rape by Roy's own 16-year-old cousin in 1962. As frequently as he was raping and murdering the women he was caught for, I imagine there are several more victims that are unaccounted for. If there is a silver lining, it's that Roy Melanson is dead. He died in May of 2020 at the age of 83. What I find inspiring in this case is the number of people who are willing to testify against Roy and help put him in jail, even though he wasn't convicted until decades after some of his crimes. These witnesses wanted to see justice done for these women, women they really didn't know personally. Charlie, who rode with Melissa and Oki, the rancher who reported finding Oki, the three men at the bar the night Anita died, the specialists who helped find Melissa's body, and of course all the hard-working police and authorities who pieced together the last moments of these women's lives. All of these amazing, good-hearted people helped find justice for Roy's victims. Thank you all for listening. As usual, I'll have pictures that go with this case posted on Twisted Travel and True Crime's Facebook, Instagram, and Patreon pages. You are the reason this podcast continues to grow. Thank you for spreading the love through word of mouth, ratings, and reviews, as well as financially. There are links in the show description for social media, as well as Patreon, 
monthly subscriptions through Anchor, or the opportunity for a single-time donation through Venmo. Thanks again, and as always, I'd like to wish you fair winds, following seas, and safe travels of all kinds.